this most recent combat prosecution of the war against ISIL in the Middle East. It has been the most precise um, in history. Sir William Francis Butler, a 19th century lieutenant general in the British Army, once said, the nation that makes a great distinction between its scholars and its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. Today we're joined by Secretary of the United States Air Force, Deborah Lee James, who's here to mark the return of the Air Force Reserve Officer Training at Harvard. This year actually marks the 100th anniversary of the first ROTC program at Harvard, so it's an especially fitting time for this. Madam Secretary, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's been a great day for the United States Air Force here at Harvard. So why is it significant for higher ed institutions to cooperate with with the military? Well, we in the Air Force and the military at large, we want to get the very best of America's young people to consider military service, be it for a few years or be it for a career. And so what better place to come than uh, higher institutions like Harvard University and others? And so the return of ROTC is very, very special because that's one of our key ways that we bring new young officers into our Air Force. I was surprised by your, uh, in your remarks, you mentioned that Harvard actually has lays claim to the most Medal of Honor recipients outside of the uh, Naval College in West Point? That's correct, and it just goes to show that Harvard has a really long and rich military tradition, um, students who go on to then serve their country in the military. Hmm. So uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit about, you mentioned the concept of strategic agility and how important that is to the Air Force's future. Can you get into that a little bit? Yes, well, strategic agility is the phrase that we're using to describe the fact that our world is changing at a dizzying pace. So there are changes in technology, there's changes in geopolitical uh, associations, there's there's uh, nation states and there's terrorist organizations that we worry about these days. So there's many, many types of change. And we in the United States Air Force have to be equally, if not more, fast in order to be able to react and think ahead and get ahead of these changes. Mm -hmm. We call that uh, precept strategic agility, the need to be rapid and more agile. Mm -hmm. One of the major uh, technology changes over the last decade or so has been the emergence of uh, drones, or as the Air Force calls them, uh, remotely piloted aircraft. Um, Can you talk about how that has changed uh, the U.S.'s, at least how it approaches its foreign policy goals? Well, I believe because of the advent of the remotely piloted aircraft, I believe that that has given the United States government, certainly the Air Force, an extra tool in the toolbox to be able to conduct very important intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance missions. So, you know, information is power, and being able to see what is going on is extremely um, powerful. So the uh, remotely piloted aircraft have helped in that regard. And then we have some in our inventory that are actually able to strike as well. And so this combination has allowed this most recent combat prosecution of the war against ISIL in the Middle East. It has been the most precise um, in history. So that is to say, because of the ISR uh, assets that we have, we watch Mm -hmm. and we wait. And sometimes we watch and we wait for weeks until we are very sure that we know what the target is. And if that is the target we want to hit, 
then we strike. And for this reason, um, we have had very, very few um, unintended civilian casualties. I think uh, drone warfare does seem like a somehow cleaner version of war because it's so highly targeted and it's remote. Um, but it hasn't been entirely without collateral damage. How do we respect uh, human rights go, you know, going forward using this technology, especially when we're so physically removed from the, the battlefield? Well, when we go to war, and war, of course, is hard, difficult, and dirty business. But when we go to war, we take our American values with us. And that is why we have placed such a premium on, first of all, the information, the watching, the waiting, being as sure as we can possibly be about that target. And the watching and waiting also means that we wait until perhaps civilians who may be in the vicinity have left the vicinity. It's not perfect, but it is the most precise campaign in the history of warfare. And we take, we take great pride in that. Our rules of engagement really require that we do that watching and waiting and that we are as sure as we can possibly be before we take the shot. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other side of the coin, uh, the drone program has been heavily taxed because it's in such heavy demand. Um, and that's that's taken its toll on the airmen and women who sustain the program. Um, can you talk about the, the processes that have been put in place in order to address those concerns? We have taken a number of steps in the last couple of years to address this very matter because essentially uh, what has been happening is the success of these programs, the power of that information that um, the RPAs bring to the force, it is more of it is now being asked for around the world. So every time we think we have enough people and enough assets to conduct the mission, the requirement goes up. So what we're going to be doing more of in the future is we're going to be continuing to build up that force, particularly in terms of the number of people. The more people that we have, that gives more opportunity for some downtime so that people aren't working 24-7 around the clock, a burnout kind of, a, of an activity. Uh, we'll also have some more time for professional development of those people. I think you're going to find over time that we locate in different uh, additional bases around the country. So there are more opportunities for people to rotate around. There are new financial incentives that we have put in place. So there's a variety of things that we're doing to try to make this better for the people. Do you think uh, remotely piloted aircraft is the future of the Air Force? I think it's a key part of our future. I'm one that doesn't quite subscribe that we will do away with manned aircraft. I really don't see that coming down the pike. But I think the RPA world is one that's very important. It's growing. Uh, it's here to stay. And we're going to continue to improve upon these systems so that they get better and better. Mm -hmm. uh, I also want to talk about nuclear command and control. Of course, in 2013, uh, it came out that a number of officers who were in control of the nuclear arsenal um, had cheated on, on their proficiency tests. How can Americans and, I suppose, people of the world in general uh, be sure that the nuclear arsenal is in the right hands? Well, um, I had those same questions when I was a brand new secretary of the Air Force. But what I learned in short order is that our nuclear enterprise has many, many different checks and balances. So as bad as that was, and it was a failure of integrity on the part of those 
who cheated, um, I convinced myself and was able to report to the American people that there were plenty of checks and balances in place. Incidentally, those airmen uh, were retested uh, almost immediately when we found out about that to ensure that they met the standard. One of the ironies of that situation was that those airmen didn't cheat in order to pass or make the standard. They cheated because they were trying to get 100. So much like students at a place like Harvard might sometimes feel pressure to get the top, top grades, mm -hmm. everybody maybe wants to get an A when a B is still a very solid grade. These airmen had a similar mentality. My understanding was that uh, on those tests, the airmen, they had to score 100 to be deemed proficient. Is that correct? They, they wanted to score 100 because those test scores and getting 100 meant that they would get promoted. And they feared that if they got 90, which was the standard and a passing grade, that mm -hmm. they would not get promoted. So, so what kind of uh, processes have been put in place to make that system better? Is it just more, uh, is there more attention paid to how people are able to cheat the, the test now? Or has, have the tests changed? Well, number one, we no longer use whether or not you get 100 on a test as a point, the sole point that we then advance and promote an airman. That was breeding the wrong kinds of behavior. Mm -hmm. So that's the first uh, change that we made. Number two, what has become a very, um, what had become a very micromanaged community, we um, eased up appro appropriately on that so that people at different levels could actually make decisions and implement decisions um, on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. uh, we have also, this, uh, this incident uncovered a variety of other problems in the nuclear force which we're now addressing involving modernizing and upgrading facilities and making it better once again for the people. I, I believe in any kind of a strategic problem. If you can fix it and get it right for the people, the other facets of the problem are much more likely to fall into place. Mm -hmm. uh, that modernization effort over the next 20 or 30 years is estimated to cost uh, about a trillion dollars to really upgrade the entire arsenal. In the 21st century, it seems like the greatest threats to the United States have come in the form of groups like ISIS. Uh, is that money well spent when nuclear weapons obviously aren't being used in that fight? Well, we actually use our nuclear weapons every day because every day that we avoid um, some sort of a nuclear war, that means that deterrence is working for us. So deterrence has been a bedrock of U.S. policy for decades. It has worked. And as much as I and Virtually everyone I know would love to have a nuclear-free world. I'm afraid that genie is out of the bottle, and I'm not sure we'll ever put it back. We, we need to continue to try to put it back in the bottle. But if we can't, then I'm grateful that we have a nuclear deterrence, which we use every day because we have, we have avoided successfully uh, nuclear war. I can tell you uh, we worry about the modernization that Russia is doing, that China is doing. We have North Korea, who's so unpredictable, who is testing and investing in nuclear capability. These are all of the threats that our nuclear forces are designed to deter. Is it necessary to keep our nuclear deterrence at the current level to, uh, you know, make sure that deterrence exists? Uh, I mean, right now, I believe we have around 5,000 nuclear weapons. Certainly in the Cold War, we had in the tens and tens of thousands. Well, the approach tends to be that we want to reduce our nuclear arsenal if it can be negotiated uh, with the other nuclear powers. 
uh, and of course START too did produce uh, reductions and we're doing our reductions and the Russians are also um, pursuing that. Whether or not our government would wish to unilaterally go down further, mm -hmm. of course that, that remains to be seen. My guess is probably not. Uh, the preponderant view, I would say, at this point is that uh, we need a credible uh, nuclear deterrent going forward, and part of credibility is the systems have to be sufficiently modern, that they're dependable, um, mm -hmm. and that your, uh, your, your potential adversaries around the world realize that you have this uh, capability, and for that reason, everybody remains in check. It, we've, we've heard about nuclear weapons being used as bunk bunker busters and, and those kind of uh, uh, smaller scale ones. Is the modernization effort a uh, way to try and bring nuclear weapons into a more uh, modern, useful uh, territory? Well, we don't ever want to make nuclear weapons easy to use. That would never, ever be the objective. But uh, for systems that are aging, uh, this is why it's so important to make sure that they are dependable and workable, not just today, but 20, 30 years down the pike. So we need to invest today to make sure that by the time these um, systems age out, that we're ready to go uh, with the next generation. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to add that, of course, all of these systems are quite expensive, and this is taxpayer money, so we take this seriously. But in the scheme of things, the nuclear, the budget for our nuclear weapons is actually a very small uh, percentage of our defense budget. Mm -hmm. uh, believe it or not, the greatest percentage uh, is the uh, dollars that we devote to people and the the uh, areas that support people, like medical care and their housing and compensation and that sort of thing. So it is a large amount of money, but in perspective, it is a relatively small percentage of our mm -hmm. overall budget. You also mentioned that uh, the attrition rate for women in the Air Force uh, is about twice what it is for men. Uh, that seems like an unsustainable uh, uh, fact. What can be done to make sure that the Air Force continues to be diverse and inclusive? Well, um, first of all, I agree with you. If half of our, if twice the number of women are attriting as compared to men at the point they reach the mid-career, that means we are bringing great people in the front door, we're spending a lot of money to train them, and then they're leaving us prematurely. So that's not uh, a successful approach to keep going on. So some of the things that we're doing to try to uh, retain additional women, and for that matter, additional men, as they reach the judgment point of getting out or staying in. When it comes to women, we've tried to put in place policies that are more family-friendly, because of course, our data suggests that women are attriting at that rate because they're dealing with work-life balance issues. So recently, our Secretary of Defense um, increased maternity leave uh, across the force for all of our women in the military. We're working on additional time for paternity leave and for adoptive parents as well, but we need congressional uh, support for that. We're, we've also delayed the period of time that women would have to deploy overseas following the birth of a child. It used to be they would have to deploy after six months. Now it's after 12 months. So we're making what I consider to be reasonable accommodations uh, to try to retain more of our women. And then finally, we have a new sabbatical program. We call it the Career Intermission Program, where both men and women, if they so choose, can take between one and three years away from active duty. They go into a reserve status, and then they come back to us after that sabbatical, and they won't have lost their place in line for promotion. We're mm -hmm. hoping that, too, will help 
keep some very qualified men and women with us longer. Well, Secretary Deborah Lee James uh, is the Secretary of the Air Force. Madam Secretary, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard Public Affairs. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast.